Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living today. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Our topic today is calm your mind and restore your energy. And we're going to be talking about how the tools of yoga help us to move beyond trauma and how we can use the ancient wisdom of yoga along with modern neuroscience to help us reduce stress, calm the nervous system, and restore our energy. And I'm so thrilled to be joined today by Joanne Spence. In addition to being a certified yoga therapist, Joanne has social work and Master of Arts degrees. She is the founder and executive director of Yoga in Schools. Joanne trains and teaches yoga, specializing in working with adults and children who are experiencing chronic pain, trauma, depression, anxiety, ADHD, and insomnia. Joanne is the author of the book we're going to be talking about today, Trauma-Informed Yoga, a Toolbox for Therapists. So welcome, Joanne Spence. I'm really delighted to have you join me today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you so much, Laurel. I'm really delighted to be here. So thank you. So before we dive in to our dialogue about calming your mind and restoring your energy, let's begin as we as we try to do here on the show with a yoga moment, a moment to bring ourselves fully present. Oh. So let's begin right where we are, just bringing our attention to our body, feeling our bodies in space and particularly feeling where our bodies connect to whatever surface supports us. So just bring your attention right there. Perhaps your feet are on the ground. If you're sitting in a chair, feel the places the chair supports you. Perhaps you're walking. Just feel the connection of your body with those surfaces. And then bring your attention to your breath as we take a fully conscious breath, noticing the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, the warm air flowing out. And as we continue to follow our breath, just resting right here 
and right now. Here's something to contemplate. From the Yoga Hour founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien's book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. Notice the abundant aliveness and divine intelligence continually pouring itself forth in nature. Even grasses, once brown and dormant, rise up with green vibrancy after the spring rain. This same healing power is inherent to our life and being. The same healing power is inherent to our life and being. So once again, Joanne Spence, welcome to the Yoga Hour podcast. As I said, I'm delighted that you could join me today to talk about using yoga's tools of movement and breath work to calm the nervous system and to reduce so many things that I mentioned that you work with people about, which are chronic pain, trauma, depression, anxiety, ADHD, and insomnia. So I really enjoyed in your book how you, you describe your own experience of initially trying yoga as, quote, one of desperation rather than curiosity. That was, a, that was a great descriptor. So can you say more about that? What what brought you to that initial practice of yoga? Yeah, so um, all of those things that you just mentioned, Laurel, that I specialize in, uh, um, all things that I've experienced in some way, shape, or form myself, and, and not necessarily as um, a clinical diagnosis, but um, my former... Um, educational path was in social work and so recognizing uh, my own need um, and my own struggles uh, led me to uh, it wasn't like I was seeking out yoga that way that was um, a little bit of I guess an accident though I don't really believe in accidents but I was in chronic pain um, after a car accident in my 30s and I was working at a um, a fitness club teaching mm. water aerobics. And it was there I discovered that uh, there was yoga was not popular like it is today. But that's where I heard the word. I saw, I saw that people were taking classes and that's where the opportunity arose. So I don't, I'm not sure that I recommend it as a path um, since my first yoga class was learning to be a yoga teacher. Uh, but nonetheless, that is my path, and mm-hmm. it, it it did transform me because after three days, I was pain free for the first time in two years, and that was dramatic. Mm-hmm. So I so, the, something somewhere the universe got my attention, so I took it as a serious path of study, and have been doing that for over twenty years now. Mm. Such a beautiful story and, and quite remarkable, really, to think about someone, as you mentioned, who had been in chronic pain for two years. And now after yeah. even the first class for you to have a period of, of pain free living um, must have just been miraculous. So so you've written this book, <clears throat> excuse me, Trauma Informed Yoga Toolbox for Therapists. And I and I should mention to our listeners that this isn't a book necessarily for everyone. It's really written for for people uh, who are doing therapy, but it had such great information in it. That's why I really wanted to have you on uh, to talk about it. And the book is really an encouragement to 
incorporate tools, some tools of movement and breathing for therapists who are working with with um, uh, clients and particularly around these issues around chronic pain and trauma and et cetera. So what inspired you to write the book that we're talking about today, Trauma Informed Yoga? Yeah, it was, there's so much to know and learn about yoga. And I'm realizing I'm just scratching the surface after 20 years. However, um, there was a, a time um, a, a few years ago that, that uh, for 10 years, um, I was working part-time each week as a yoga therapist in a very large psychiatric hospital. And again, this was before yoga was wildly popular. And even before I was understanding the very real mental health benefits, um, I had understood some more of the physical health benefits from my own experience with chronic pain. But as I was learning right along with my patients how to apply some of the more subtle and gentle aspects of uh, yoga practice, it became, I, I realized that yoga shines most brightly as a day-to-day -day practice or a daily practice. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, I wasn't able to go in every day and the, certainly the hospital wasn't making space for, for that type of programming. And yet the reality is, you know, we need to breathe every day. We need to, to um, eat every day. We have bodily systems that have daily, um, daily functions to be well. And I see that movement and breath work is in that same vein of daily practice. And that it isn't rocket science. It might be neuroscience, but, but <laughs> not rocket science. And so I thought, well, what if, um, you know, not everybody's had the chance to spend 20 plus years learning and going to trainings and practicing. Are there elements that, that we could take, that I could take and write about? And, and I was worried that it would be too simplistic, but I got over that to to realize to put the these tools in the hands of skilled therapists was a responsible thing. And part of my calling, I felt to to broaden accessibility of the practice, particularly in places like mental health settings, where a little bit really goes a long way. So that was my motivation was to to seeing people in front of me benefit from even small, uh, subtle, gentle breath practice and movement breath practice. And that I didn't feel like, even though that it took skill and learning to teach that, that perhaps it was, it was reasonable to think that someone that was interested in helping their clients in this way could learn this by doing this for themselves and using a script and having a little bit of an idea of the science that it could be slotted in over the top of the skills they already had. And mm -hmm. so I felt compassionate of being able to, you know, compelled to be able to reach people um, in this broader way. So mm -hmm. I took on the, the unwielding task of thinking, <laughs> yes, a book. Wouldn't that be a great idea? <laughs> and it is. It is a really lovely book. I think you're really successful at, at making the 
uh, at first grounding the um, the what you want to present in the science, the neuroscience, as you said, and then having these um, 47 uh, simple practices that you go through in the book that are very accessible and you have presented them in a way that I think makes them makes them more accessible to people who want to use them. So what attracted me to your book was um, I have been thinking about this particular moment in time. And here we are in we're recording this in May of of uh, 2021. We've been in this pandemic for what, 14 or 15 months now, depending on how, how you count where you count the beginning. Um, and as I was reflecting on that fact, that, that this is where we are, that the level of vaccination is increasing, the restrictions appear to be lifting for people who are vaccinated. Um, and it, it just it just made me really think about how much potential for trauma there has been during this period of time. So clearly, people have lost loved ones. Many, many, I mean, there's, what is it, uh, 590,000 people have died in the United States. I mean, that's a lot of families who have lost someone. Um, then uh, just daily life has uh, changed for so many, whether they lost jobs, whether they had to change what they were doing because their children were home and needed help uh, accessing online learning, um, or even just the fear that we all face, particularly early on when it wasn't really as clear what how the, the uh, virus was spreading, even just going to the grocery store. Something is that mundane, you know, had a level of fear associated with it. You know, am I going to catch this? And so um, now that this is now that we are, I wouldn't say we're definitely at the end by any means of the pandemic. There's still a lot of room to go on vaccinations, et cetera, but it is just beginning. And um, it seemed like a great time to talk about that, that potential for trauma. And here I was on Amazon and your book popped up. I was like, oh, something about trauma and yoga. <laughs> this is a person that I want to have on the show. And sure enough, when I got the book and reviewed it, uh, it just, you know, in, increased my desire to speak with you and have you talk. So, so you, in the book, you define trauma. So let's start there. So how do you view trauma, you know, as, as you defined it for the purpose of the book? Yeah, I will do that. Um, before I say that, um, it is important to note that that I started writing this book in June of 2019, yes. before there was any hint of um, a pandemic. And I, in fact, handed in my manuscript the week that the America, North America, went into lockdown. So this was written pre-pandemic. Um, so it's really interesting to me how this has coincided uh, because I gave a definition uh, from the um, American Psychological so Association. But really what I'm doing in this book that I've added is that I'm using trauma in the broadest sense of the word, that anything that currently overwhelms our ability to cope with our circumstances and, you know, lo and behold, here we, you know, as I'm going through editing, we, um, we're, we're facing trauma and that's, it's all of us. It's very personal and in very different ways, of course. Um, and there's, there's a continuum, but it's, so it's you, it's me, it's our families, it's our neighbors, it's our coworkers. Uh, and so I was, I was applying trauma in its, um, most broadest sense and, even if we look at um, things like post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, and people thinking that that is a rare thing or post-traumatic stress 
in its various forms. Uh, trauma in a clinical sense is not nearly as rare as, uh, it, as we once thought. And it also, just a, and adding in the clinical aspect, um, I was also thinking of secondary trauma of all of the people um, I think there was one, there was a, in, in my research, um, coming across various articles of um, many times people that are first responders, therapists, humanitarian workers, after years in the field may find themselves with the same symptoms of the people that they are serving. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's troubling. Um, and I'm, I feel sure that that probably rings true with a lot of people. So broadest sense um, trauma is something that affects all of us we respond differently and not all of us uh, will um, have a disorder uh, post-traumatic stress disorder but we all are internalizing something that is now not present and are looking for those places of internal and external safety mm. Mm, it's just a beautiful way of saying it, internal and external safety. It's really lovely. So um, you called the book Trauma-Informed Yoga. So I'll give you a minute to talk about, so what does that mean, trauma-informed yoga? Yeah, so I'm I'm actually making an argument that all yoga should be trauma-informed, and that simply means having a very uh, basic understanding uh, of trauma and the autonomic nervous system. And, and I should probably say that it, mean, it doesn't mean that trauma-informed yoga is trauma treatment. I'm talking about a more universal sense of understanding that how you breathe and how you move um, is part of what the nervous system does. And that when we practice and that becomes part of who we are, that that can actually affect the nervous system. So it gives us some agency in, in a realm that uh, we may think we have no control of. Uh, where yoga helps us to have some control. It's a little bit of a paradox, uh, but it really that breaks down into the language that we use, um, inviting people into a practice, being open and welcoming to people uh, wherever they are in their um, in their life, in their day, in their body, in their mood. Uh, our voice, how we use our voice, and being able to provide cueing and instruction if you're a teacher with our voice and the tone of our voice rather than using our hands. I think these are some very basic um, components of what I would call trauma-informed yoga. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, this is a time that we're just perhaps coming to the beginning of the end of this pandemic with all of the potential for trauma that it has in included. So what are some indications that a person might have experienced some trauma during this time that perhaps they're not aware of? Yeah, it, it, it can look um, harder to tell when you're working online with people, which is what I've been doing predominantly this, these days. But certainly when I was in a room with people, um, noticing a, a level of um, this part of yoga that's about stillness and, and an inability to do that and being fidgety even during Shavasana um, are some of the telltale signs. Or somebody that's 
always looking for affirmation and am I doing a posture right when we're um, helping somebody get an internal awareness of a feeling for them, not whether it's a right or wrong way to do something. So there, that's a couple of the, um, and a couple of things that I've noticed and, and simply the way somebody is breathing. Um, that I think that that's something that yoga teachers develop over time is being able to see uh, whether somebody's shallow breathing shallowly or if they're able to access a diaphragmatic uh, breath. So these are all things that uh, are observable things that help to see. And, and then of course, there's the energetic piece of getting a sense of where somebody is from their demeanor, uh, their voice, um, where they're holding tension in the body. Sometimes that's that's observable even through platforms like Zoom. <laughs> so in your book, Trauma-Informed Yoga, you give 10 foundational principles that you use when working with students or clients. And I, I really enjoyed those. So you write uh, that the two that you use in every class are linking breath and movement and only move in your pain-free range of motion. So let's take those one at a time. So regarding linking breath and movement, you write, linking breath to movement is a key first step to developing awareness. It is a huge thing for a person to realize that there are specific movements and thoughts that cause them to hold their breath. There are specific movements and thoughts that ca cause a person to hold their breath. And this is something obviously that people are, are often not aware of. So can you say more about that? Can you say more about the linking breath to movement and in particular becoming more aware of when we're holding our breaths and what might trigger us to hold our breaths? Yeah, I mean, I find that, that this cue, this linking breath to movement is a distinguishing feature between something being called a yoga practice of, uh, or being simply a form of exercise. Mm -hmm. And yes. that seems to resonate. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree that when we're talking about asana or, or yoga postures as a yoga practice, and of course, yoga, we really talk about yoga in its full range on this show as being much more than just the postures. But yes, I agree with you that that is what, what differentiates doing yoga postures from other kinds of exercise is using that awareness of breath. But in particular, I was interested in, in building that awareness of, of our breathing and bringing that off the mat and into our lives where we can then perhaps um, experience more, uh, become more aware of when we're holding our breath. Yes, and I and I think it is often um, in something like a yoga class context that someone um, hears for the very first time um, to notice your breath, mm -hmm. to link your breath to your movement, because it it's like well. I was breathing when I woke up this morning. Why would I need to think about it? And right. you, and you, you know, thankfully we don't need to think about it. But I think in drawing someone's attention to making that connection is it's often the beginning of the path of awareness. 
So the other thing that you said, the other foundational principle that you use is only move in your pain-free range of motion. And I would point out that this is the opposite of the no pain, no gain approach that perhaps people may be more familiar with, you know, in terms of other exercise that they've done. So why is it important to only move in a person's pain-free range of motion? <laughs> so countercultural, isn't it? Uh, when we hear that, no <laughs> really pain, no gain. I, yeah, yeah. And so um, I see that as a particular part of the Yoga Sutra, which is at two, um, two, 2.46 of cultivating ease and steadiness. And that requires to slow down. It requires linking breath to movement. And it's so much easier to say it than it is to do it because I see grimaced faces. I see people holding their breath and they want to do what you, what you're um, cueing or suggesting that they do and they're going to do it by goodness. Whether And so helping them not do that and to simply pay attention to the breath and to do it slowly enough uh, again, simply suggesting that perhaps that's a place to start. I see that as revolutionary for some people. And I'm very aware that working with people in chronic pain or in acute phases of mental health, this is, this is a really hard ask. But having them know that it's possible and, and then doing something that they could reasonably, reasonably assume success through doing, just a simple inhaling the hands up and exhaling down and feeling that I think is a really good start. Mm. So you mentioned the Yoga Sutras and Patanjali's Yoga Sutra 246, which talks about those two words, sukha and shtira. And um, you you talk about uh, sukha as ease, which is, I think, a good translation. The other way I've heard it translated is sweet. So steady, mm -hmm. steady and sweet. And there's something about that sweetness that also, I think, captures for me, you know, that, that ease that you're talking about. Oh, I love that. I hadn't heard that translation. I'm going to use that, Laurel. Thank you. <laughs> Well, very good. <laughs> and with that, we've come to the break. You're listening to The Yoga Hour. My guest today is Joanne Spence, a certified yoga therapist. Joanne trains and teaches yoga, specializing in working with adults and children who are experiencing chronic pain, trauma, depression, anxiety, ADHD, and insomnia. You can find out more about her uh, about Joanne at her website, joannespence.com. And Joanne has an E, J-O-A-N-N-E, Spence, just like it sounds, S-P-E-N-C-E.com. You can also follow her on Facebook at Joanne Spence and on Instagram at Urban Oasis PTH. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. When we come back from the break, we'll be exploring more about yoga practices to overcome trauma. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour, insights and practices for spiritually conscious living. 
Welcome back from the break. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, and my guest today is Joanne Spence, yoga therapist and author of the book we're discussing today, Trauma-Informed Yoga. So Joanne, um, as a medical doctor, I was particularly interested in the science uh, behind some of the work and the, the way that you presented in your book, and in particular, the polyvagal theory, which describes the role of the vagus nerve in emotion, connect, uh, social connection, and our fear response. And in your book, you write, my own knowledge of the autonomic nervous system and of the polyvagal theory has become foundational to my understanding of why yoga works to calm, activate, or rebalance the nervous system. So I thought, wow, that's really cool. Let's talk about that a little bit. So let's start with giving listeners a, a basic understanding of the polyvagal theory, which is, uh, as we were just talking about, was uh, originally developed by Stephen Porges in 1994. And the theory provides a, a framework, hierarchical framework of the autonomic nervous system and how the body responds to cues of safety in our environment. Um, and you really simplify and make this accessible in the book, which is why I wanted to talk about it with you. So let's talk about, start with the vagus nerve. So where is the vagus nerve located and uh, how does it work? Yeah, the vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve and it begins uh, right at the uh, top of the brainstem at the medulla, and it wanders through the body. In fact, the term wanders. Um, there's a, a, a wonderful illustration. You can Google it. It's by Vesalius. And in 1543, long time ago, and it's one of the more common pictures of this wandering vagus nerve. And it just it blows my mind to have that visual from someone in the 16th century. So the this wandering nerve go beginning um, high up in the brain goes through the face, the throat, the heart, the lungs, the stomach, the in intestine. And so it wanders through the entire length of the torso. And this is why learning um, how the breath and movement or that it does um, tone the vagal, vagal nerve, uh, this is really good news because it integrates all of these different parts of the body. So I'm looking right now in your book at that little uh, drawing by Vesalius, and I am mm -hmm. amazed. It's incredible <laughs> what he was able to to uh, draw, and uh, I would encourage listeners to uh, to to Google it. Um, it's. Uh, do you think they would just get it by his name, Vesalius, I, or I say, think so. And yeah. wandering vagus nerve, Vesalius. wandering vagus nerve, because it goes really. It shows the you know the brain up above, but then it has all of these branches that go all the way down. All and you can see it goes all the way into the intestine. So it's it's pretty it's pretty remarkable, and that's very cool. So you describe in the book the three branches of this. Um, uh, autonomic nervous system or the um, this uh, polyvagal theory. So the dorsal vagal, the sympathetic and the ventral vagal. So um, can you uh, describe them a little bit more, each of them, how they make us feel and maybe give an example? Yes. Uh, and my an, an initial understanding, I think probably many people's understanding before polyvagal theory was uh, more of a dichotomous um, sort of sympathetic and uh, dorsal vagal like collapse 
and and really there's two parts to so sympathetic would be when we're mobilized into fight or flight um, and in a good way that might be what helps a little bit of the stress hormones adrenaline cortisol getting us up in the morning when that goes a little too far that's when we are ready to you know to run or to defend ourselves um, and, but there's two parts to the parasympathetic um, it's we know as rest and digest would be the part that um, when we go to that still quiet place and we can rest, that would be when we're healthy and we're in a good space in dorsal vagal. But also the dorsal vagal might be where, um, where we might not be able to move. So an immobilization, an inability to move. And in mammals that uh, might be called something like death feigning um, or collapse, um, or some people might might faint where you really think that your life is in, in danger. And we've got that in-between space where we want to be and a shooting for most of the time in ventral vagal where we feel safe, connected the, the space that we're ready to learn and function and where we're able to co-regulate with others because it's about nervous systems in relationship to other nervous systems mm -hmm. deb dana talks about a lot of this in her work and how we uh um, our nervous systems affect the other nervous systems around us and that's a really important point for yoga teachers and therapists mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, this system that we're talking about, the autonomic nervous system, is also an automatic, or it's felt to be mostly automatic. And yet, uh, we know that we can control it we're using tools from yoga, including, including postures and breathing practices. So um, here's something that normally operates automatically without our conscious input, and yet we can have some agency this is a word that you used over it. We can have a little bit of control over that. So can you explain or elaborate on that and the importance of that? Yeah. And I would say only sometimes can we have control over that. Yes. Yes. Very important to say that. Yes. Yeah. So I would say over time with willful practice, mindful practice, uh, practice being the word here of it takes time to build up our capacity um, to develop, to have that sense of agency, which requires the self-care and the self-awareness to do that. We can read the uh, the triggers or test out that, that sense when we don't have a felt sense of safety. Is it true? Is it not true? Uh, oh, I am safe. And then we can start to regulate our system uh, using our practice, either through meditation, through doing some pranayama, doing some asana, some, um, some postural work. And we're going to notice that sense of coming back to ventral vagal, that we can unactivate ourselves from that sympathetic into the sympathetic. And... That's where over time, because uh, it seems like a paradox, uh, as you said, it is the autonomic nervous system. But that practice over time, we are actually able to um, have that sense of agency to bring ourselves into that place. And I think that's also you know, how we can generally describe what self-regulation is. 
Yes. And for listeners who may not be as familiar with the term, so the pranayama that you were talking about are just breathing practices and the asana that we have discussed are just the postures. So we're talking about postures and breathing and breathing practices and the postures don't have to look like the person who's on the front of, of a yoga magazine that you see in the, <laughs> in the grocery store. These can be subtle movements. And particularly if we're trying to do it in the pain-free range of motion that, that people have, um, it may look nothing like that. And the way that you've described them in the book, these are things you can just do seated. You don't, you mm-hmm. don't have to have, you don't even have to get your mat out. These are things that yep. you can just do in your, in your desk chair. So, um, so that brings us to part two of the book, which are the practices that you, that you go through. Um, so you just, you've divided them in the book into four different categories, which you mentioned they, they do overlap somewhat, but I thought as we talk about each one, maybe you can give us an example of a practice that comes from that section of the book. So for the uh, calming practices, uh, first of all, just say a little bit about the calming nature of them and then maybe do the side breathing one with uh, uh, for our listeners. Yes, I would love to. So calming practices, um, and and this is a little bit of the paradoxical of that sometimes something that's calming for you might not be calming for me, and that's where the practice comes in to, and the awareness to notice at any given practice or any one of the practices um, how it what the effect is on your own nervous system, and that's through trial and error. Um, and trying it and I sometimes um, give prime the pump a little and uh, give an image for people to think about of like having a tool belt on with three pockets and one of them is for calming practices one of them is for energizing practices and a middle pocket for when we're not really sure how it's affecting us or maybe it's a balancing practice it might be a little bit of both but a calming practice like sighing breath would help us to access ventral vagal, deactivate if we're feeling in, in a sympathetic fight and flight mode. And sometimes when we're in fight and flight, we might be breathing a, um, a shallow breath. We might be breathing quickly. And when we know we're doing that, then we have a chance of being able to interrupt that pattern. And so simply uh, opening the mouth or breathing in through the nose and then sighing it out And I like to do that with a hand motion as well. So if anybody would like to join me in that, I'm just sitting in my chair with my feet on the floor and I'm going to inhale and lift my arms up and I'm going to just move my chair away so I don't hit my hands on the desk. I'm going (laughs) to sigh it out and let my hands just drop into my lap. If you'd like to try that with me, let's try it three times. So we're going to inhale through the nose, sigh it out, drop your hands down. So it's a big embodied sigh. Inhale, lift the arms. Sigh it out through the mouth. Drop the arms. One more time. Inhale the arms up. Drop the arms down. And sometimes it's just an embodiment of how we're feeling in the moment. I even like to make the sigh pretty loud. Yes, Yes, you know, to to do it again. So inhale. (sighs) 
Yes. <laughs> just let that all out. That felt great. Thank you. <laughs> so shall we do um, balancing practice next or do you want to do energizing since that was the other yeah, pocket that, okay, balancing. So I thought the movement one, uh, yeah. one of the ones that, that we thought about including was the alternate nostril breathing that I literally just talked about that last week with another guest. And so I thought, well, let's do something different. And so I like uh, the cat cow. So to do a seated cat cow and perhaps a more subtle cat cow than listeners have had before. So go ahead. Yes. So very similar a movement, a little bit of a different effect because we're sitting in a chair. And so the weight load is going to be different, but it's since some of us do a lot of sitting these days, this is a very good one to be able to do any time to take a little break. So feet are on the floor, the spine is straight. And if you're pain-free today and you can move your spine, you could exhale through the nose and make a C with your spine. So hands are just resting on the knees. Exhale, rounding. And then inhale, lift the chest, a little bit of an arch of the back. Maybe your gaze goes up a little bit. And again, linking breath to movement. Exhale, round. Inhale, lift. And you're just going to do that, repeating that movement and noticing how that feels in your body. And if your spine is not feeling great today, even imagining the movement or making the tiniest of movements is very helpful. Finding that pain-free range on a day your back's feeling grumpy is not easy. So being kind to yourself. And then when you're ready, just coming to stillness, notice your feet on the floor, your bottom on the chair. And that's an example of seated cat and cow, a balancing practice. That's beautiful. And something that is super simple and something that even, as you said, if it's very subtle, it, it does have marked benefits and something that if you are seated a lot, this would be great to bring as in as a practice every hour, every few hours, just to get some movement in your spine. That'd be great. So we, you mentioned the energizing practices are on the other side, and I thought mm -hmm. that the bellows breath would be one to uh, lead listeners in. So how about that? Oh, yes. I love bellows breath. <laughs> so I do it with an arm action, and this is how um, I learned this with life force yoga, which is a, a specialty practice that really looks at um, the application of yoga and mental health settings. So Sometimes um, you could do this to lift the energy. So if you were in a, a less energetic mood, even towards depression, this would lift the energy. But I'm also going to add here that sometimes even when you're feeling anxious, like too, the energy is too high, sometimes meeting, we call it meeting the mood in life force yoga uh, and doing a higher energy practice. You might spike just a little bit of energy, but then it's going to, come down and even out a little bit more. But again, it depends, you know, how does that interface with your own nervous system? But I've had lots of reports that from people feeling anxious in the moment, trying this and it calming a little bit. So 
therein lies the one of the three pockets. It might be in all three. So we're going to do inhale, exhale, moving the arms up and down, inhale. And we're going to do a mudra here, and we're going to fold. So just a gesture where we fold the thumbs in and just let the thumbs curl over the, the fingers, curl over the thumbs. So inhaling, the hands are going up like stars, exhaling, coming down. So that is the arm movement to bellows. And I'm nearly always doing it too fast. So I'm going to try it, slow it down to about one a second. You don't want to go faster than that. And then the breath is through the nose and it's in and out as forcefully as if you were blowing out a birthday candle with your, with the, the breath coming through your lips. So it's a, but you're going to take that through the nose and sometimes you might need to blow your nose in order to prepare for it. So I usually have some tissues on hand. Uh, otherwise, things could go flying. So let's just practice that for a moment. In and out through the nose. So let's see if we can put them together. And let's do five or six. And then we'll do two slow ones. And I'll keep the count. We're sitting with our feet on the floor, bottom on the chair, spine is straight. And let's begin. Inhale. Let's do two slow ones. And just let your hands rest on your lap, sensing into the right hand. Sensing into the left hand, sensing into the right foot, sensing into the left foot. And just notice perhaps your heart's beating a little faster. Does it fit in a particular pocket? And don't worry if you don't know in this moment. It just means that maybe a little more practice and your body will tell you. Bella's breath. Lovely. <clears throat> I think that that is so great that we've talked about one in each of the pockets. So a calming, a balancing and an energizing. So what we've done so far. And then the fourth section that you give are visualizations and meditations. And I was thinking about what does gratitude look like? Mm. Such unless, a, unless you a, prefer a different one, which is fine. Hard to choose. <laughs> I love the gratitude one. I love the gratitude one. So it's, this is an invitation to, to be with the feeling of gratitude for a moment. So let's allow ourselves to feel our feet on the floor, the bottom on the chair, and sometimes using your hand, maybe placing a hand on the heart, a hand on the belly. Help us to get a better felt sense of our own being. Gratitude. And take a moment and see if you can bring to mind something or someone that you're deeply grateful for. And just summons all the using your imagination, all the detail that you can muster in your mind's eye. Taking a moment. 
And then as you see that person, maybe it's a pet, maybe someone passed or a place, perhaps a feeling of gratitude arises. But don't feel like you have to manufacture it, just be with the image. Maybe that little bit of pressure on the hand, that heartfelt, that heartfelt gratitude for what this image represents. And then maybe a little bit of pressure on the belly. Being aware that there are indeed, even on our darkest days, things, people, places that we are grateful for. Stay with the image. Stay with the feeling if it's there. Just allow yourself to breathe in and out. Just allow your hands to relax. Relax your hands to your knees. If your eyes are closed, open them. Just let yourself stay for a moment with the beauty deep within. Thank you for letting me share that. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was really nice. Thank you. I really appreciated that. And with that, unbelievably, we're toward the end of our conversation. We just have about a minute and a half left. And I wanted to ask you in closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? Yes, I thank you. I, it's a little bit paradoxical because I'm hoping that through my words of the book that I might be persuaded to perhaps try um, some practice, but also to be skeptical. Don't believe me. Uh, maybe try it for yourself. Uh, just do it. Start small, but it's in the practice. So at some point you have to put down even compelling, interesting books <laughs> to to do the practices themselves. So I would encourage the listeners to do that for themselves as an act of caring for themselves and indeed the world. Mm -hmm. That's such great advice. And one of the things that I love about the yoga path is it is one that we, we can read about it certainly, but then we have to find out for ourselves. It really is based on our experience, our experience mm -hmm. of it. And, um, doing the kind of practices that we did today and then noticing how it, it makes us feel. That's part of mm -hmm. the, the um, awareness, the self-study that goes into mm -hmm. the practice of yoga and how we do take it off of the, just whatever practice space we have, whether that's a mat or the chair, if we're doing chair yoga, but to really integrate it into our lives. Right. Yes. Yes. I would say amen to that. <laughs> Lovely. 
<laughs> and with that, you've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show, and I've been discussing Calm Your Mind and Restore Your Energy with guest Joanne Spence, who is a certified yoga therapist and founder and executive director of Yoga in Schools. You can find out more about her at her website, joannespence.com. Again, Joanne with an E, spence.com. And you can follow her on Facebook at Joanne Spence and Instagram at Urban Oasis, and it's PGH, which is the Pittsburgh uh, abbreviation. So Urban Oasis PGH. Thank you so much for this conversation, Joanne. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you, Laurel. It's a pleasure to be here. So for listeners, join me next time when I'll be joined by Baxter Bell. He's a physician, MD, and a yoga therapist to discuss how yoga practices, breath techniques, and meditation can curb inflammation and support us in living a healthier life. Also for listeners, we encourage you to join us for the many online programs offered by Yogacharya O'Brien and the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, including morning meditation, which occurs daily from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. Pacific, daily afternoon meditations from 4 to 4.30 p.m. Pacific, and Sunday satsangs uh, with ministers from CSE and often Yogacharya O'Brien occur from 10 to 11 a.m. Pacific time. There was also an upcoming online Kriya Yoga Summer Retreat with Yogacharya O'Brien, which will be held June 24th to 27th, 2021, and listeners can register at csecenter.org. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. CSE welcomes people from all backgrounds who are seeking self and God realization, a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are enjoying the podcast, got something out of these wonderful exercises that Joanne did with us today, maybe share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producers Ann Hayes and Mickey Coronado, and Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at Unity Online Radio. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today.